Uh, good morning, my friends. I <laughs> love you guys, man. Thanks, Pop. <laughs> he spoke for you. He said we. Did you notice that? <clears throat> Everyone else is like, I like you. <laughs> Love you guys. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's cover the scriptures in some prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We're so grateful that you gave it to us, Lord that we might know your heart and your mind, Father, that we might see that you called things uh, that were not as though they were, Father, and that you spoke of things long before they ever came to pass, Father. And we see that you've accomplished all the things that you've spoken and all the promises that you've made, you've kept, Father, because you are the promise keeper, Lord. Uh, and we're so thankful that we get to sit and study this together, Lord, and just see your, your glory and your goodness and your truth and your justice and your mercy and uh, all of the beautiful attributes of, you, uh, attributes of you, Father, working through imperfect people, Lord. And so it gives us hope, knowing so well in our hearts that we are imperfect and fall so far short, Lord, from the goal set before us of being conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus. And yet, because of the blood that he shed for us at Calvary, Lord, we're covered. We are atoned for, Father, and you see on us his righteousness, Lord, and not our own works. And for that, we are so grateful and thankful, Father. We pray that you would have your way in us and through us, Lord, and that you would use us to be a beacon of light and hope and truth and love and mercy, Lord, in a time in which the world needs those things perhaps more than ever before. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be preparing us to do a work of ministry, Father, something different than we've ever done before, something different than we've ever experienced before, maybe something we've never even thought of, Father. We pray that you'd be preparing each heart for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. All right. Well, poor old Balaam. Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting character. And he is, for us, a cautionary tale. Uh, Balaam is for every Christian, certainly for everyone uh, in the ministry. Uh, he is a cautionary tale. And, and, be, and I say that because... Peter and Jude both specifically name Balaam and use Balaam in reference to speaking about false teachers, uh, to speaking about those who were called of God or presumed to speak for God to the people, to lead a people, uh, and yet in their heart, in their heart of hearts, uh, they are for themselves. They are here for whatever that they can get out of it. They're here for material gain. They're, they're here for, to, to amass to themselves things and, and pleasures. And they're, they're entirely and completely people of this world. They're not heavenly minded. They're not godly minded. Uh, and there's a warning that's given there in Jude and in Peter about these false teachers. Uh, I think it's Peter, I can't remember if it's Peter or Jude, where it says blackest darkness is reserved for them. That is frightening. Uh, if you're a person who's been called to, to any, any ministry whatsoever, especially a teaching ministry, that is frightening. Uh, and, and for me, every time I read through that, I'm like, please, Lord. Because, you know, you ever read through the worst parts of the Bible and you can see a couple things in there that look like you? I hate when that happens, right? Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, you know, and, and, and you read through these, these, these about when you're talking about these false prophets and these false teachers, that they're completely and entirely of the flesh. 
That's what they're about. They are about this life. Everything that they do, uh, everything that they're about, everything that they're involved with, it all comes back to uh, feeding their own lusts, really. Uh, And, you know, I'm also very, very thankful for the fact that, you know, Jesus gave the disciples that parable of the wheat and the tares, Right, and so so the master goes, sends his servants out. They go out and they sow the seed, which is of course indicative of, always of the word of God. the The field is the world, right, and the seed is always the word of God. But then he says, but during the night the enemy went out and planted tares or weeds amongst the good seeds, so that they began to grow up together. And then the, when the tares began to come up with the wheat, uh, the servants went to the master and said, shall we go through and, and pull up the tares? And the master said, no, 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 because in doing so, you may disrupt or destroy or disturb the good seeds. Let them grow together. And when the harvest comes and they're both ripe and they're both ready, the wheat will be taken into the barn, right? And the tares will be taken and bundled and thrown into the fire. I'm glad that it's not my job to rip up tares, right? My job is to just make sure I'm good wheat, right? That's all I want to be is good wheat. There are tares all around. Some are plainly seen. Some are harder to be seen. Some you don't find out for years that they're actually tares in disguise or wolves in sheep's clothing is another uh, euphemism that we use, But God knows and God understands. And it's an interesting fact that he allows that. And I think part of the reason is, remember, uh, we're going to read later on, as the children of Israel are coming into the promised land and as they're having victories over their enemies, that God has told them to go in and inhabit this land and, 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 and just completely take it over and in many cases destroy these people who are ripe for judgment. The Bible also says that God left certain groups of people in the land so that the children of Israel would be able to know and practice and train for warfare. So he specifically left enemies within their borders so that they would know warfare, so that they would have training that they would never have a generation that came up and knew nothing about the good fight. And I think that that's an important lesson for you and I. I think that God always wants us to remember that we are soldiers. We are soldiers in an eternal fight, an eternal war, or I should say a war that has eternal consequences. And the wonderful thing about that is is we know that God already has been victorious, right? He already is victorious. The battle, the victory is already won, and yet, and yet, God puts us into the fray. And God allows us to be a part of these battles. I believe that he wants us to because he wants our faith. He wants our trust and hope in him and our belief in him and our understanding of him to grow and to be strengthened. Paul talks about the fact that person who's enlisted in the military does not entangle themselves in civilian affairs. Their concern is about what their commanding officers have told them to do. That's what their concern is. And Paul says that we ought to be the same way as Christians. Hello, right? You see everything that you're completely being immersed in and dunked in and dipped in, right? You know, go to the Gannon Isle ice cream place, right? And you get the, you get chocolate sauce. This is what you get. If you haven't gotten the shame on you, you get the chocolate or twist. I'll accept that. And then you dip it in the peanut butter hard shell. Oh my merciful heavens. It's so delightful. Oh, I can taste it right now. 
But under that hard shell, that's all you can see is that hard shell. And that's all you can experience is that hard shell until you take that off and you see what's underneath. And we are like the ice cream cones, I feel like, in the world today. And we've been dipped in the hard shell. We are completely surrounded and it's like... Uh, all of the, 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 the flood of dissipation that the scripture calls it, everything that's going on in the world today, we're completely dunked in it. You can't turn over to the right or the left without being uh, confronted with it. And where are you on this? And what side are you on? What side are you on? What side are you on? Hey, remember what the angel of the Lord said to Joshua? When Joshua said, whose side are you on? Neither. I love that part. But we're the children of Israel. You know what I mean? What do you mean, neither? You imagine? Whose side are you on, Lord? Oh. <laughs> neither. I'm on the side of God. I'm on the side of God. That's whose side we're on. That's whose side we need to stand on. We need to remember that, that you and I are fighting a different battle than everybody else is out there. All the things that people are running back and forth and beating each other up and burning buildings down and, 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 and just roiled and angry about have no, you and I have no interest in that whatsoever. And when I say interest, I don't mean that you don't care about it. What I mean is you don't have any interest in it. Your money's not in that bank. That's the interest I'm talking about. You don't have any interest in the affairs of the world. You are to be storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. See, this is what separates a person of God from a person like Balaam. Because Balaam was about the here and the now. And whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? Balaam was singing in that choir. That's what he was all about. And we're going to start to talk about that uh, in, in uh, well, we're at the end of... Um, Let's see. Let's go to chapter 22 and verse 39. So Balaam went with Balak, with Balak, and they came to Kirjath Huzoth. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places. Notice of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Chapter 23, then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. <clears throat> and Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, this is Balaam talking to God, I have prepared the seven altars and have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him and there he was 
that is Balak, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. So a couple of things, a couple of notable things here to, to notice. First of all, uh, Balak in verse 41 of chapter 22 took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. So regardless of the fact that Balaam had said, the Lord my God, and I can't speak anything more than what the Lord my God says, he finds himself perfectly content and comfortable amongst the worshipers of Baal. Uh, and that's where Balak brings Balaam. He brings him up to the high places of Baal. This is where we're going to worship Balaam. This is where you're going to do your ministry, Balaam. You see who's dictating to who? Now, Balaam may not be able to speak anything that uh, goes beyond what God had given him to speak. He's clear about that. And when we go through all the oracles and the prophecies that he gives concerning the nation of Israel, we're going to see that, in fact, that is true. And Balaam has an understanding because when he goes to the high, desolate place and speaks to God, he says, see, I've offered up, I've put up seven altars, and I've offered the rams, and I've, I've offered the oxen and the goats. And there's an understanding there, isn't there, that Balaam has of worship and of sacrifice. And yet he's perfectly content, he's perfectly com comfortable at the high place of Baal as well. All right? So that's the first thing we notice. The next thing that we notice is that as Balaam speaks to God, uh, let's see, <clears throat> um, verse, th verse 3 of chapter, of chapter 23, then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering. Now notice, stand by your burnt offering. Where's his burnt offering? On the high places of Baal, right? And he says, it's your burnt offering. Let me ask you this. Did King Balak have any standing whatsoever in which to offer sacrifices to Jehovah? Absolutely not. Absolutely not whatsoever. He had no standing, and yet Balaam is acting as though Balak is just like him. Balak is saying, stand by your offering, good job, you're doing the right things. You see a lot of that in the church today. People in this world need to know that they are lost without Jesus Christ. Uh, the church is too quick and too fast and too excited to be an encouragement, to be such an encouragement all the time, and to not be Debbie Downer to the people of this world all the time, that we're afraid to tell them, hey, yeah, that's great, I'm glad you do it. Did you notice? Did you notice? Hey, did you see this thing? Did you see? That's wonderful, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. You need to know Jesus. That ain't enough. Do you understand that? We need, to, we need to be telling our friends who are not saved, who don't know Jesus Christ, or who think they know Jesus Christ, but have never asked Jesus Christ personally, stopped and prayed and said the words, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I accept the gift that you offered up through your son, Jesus Christ, and I ask now that he would come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and be my Lord and my Savior. It's, it, everybody can say Jesus is Lord. The demons believe in God, the scripture says, and tremble. There has to be a brokenness. Jesus said it himself. All who fall upon this rock will be broken into pieces. That's all. But he on whom this rock falls will be ground into powder. There is a brokenness that all must go through to come to the Lord your God through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the rock. Now, he is also, Scripture teaches us, the cornerstone. He is the very foundation of our faith, and yet he is the rock on which all of us who come to him must be broken. There must be a brokenness. It's not a suggestion. Wouldn't it be nice if you were broken before the Lord? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if you were, you must be broken 
on the rock of Jesus Christ. All who would come to him, all who would claim to have a relationship with God through Christ must be broken upon the rock. What does that mean, brokenness? Broken to self. Broken to self-will. Broken to our own lusts and our own passions. Our own will being done. And instead become people who are given over to it's God's will that it needs to be accomplished, not my own. Right? When you pray, Jesus said, pray like this. And he gives the disciples a model for prayer. And it always blows my mind. And so it really interesting to me to study human nature and just to observe how people are. And people are all the same. People are people no matter where you go. Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites who pray uh, vain, repetitious prayers. But when you pray, pray like this. And he gives them a model an outline for what prayer should look like. And then what does the church do? The church takes that prayer, calls it the Our Father, and makes it a vain, repetitious prayer. You ever think about that? That's what we've done. Every day before we went out to play football game, a football game, we, the, we would gather around and the coach, we would say the Our Father, because that's going to help, right? Because definitely God liked Henniger better than Rome Free Academy. I mean, that's clear, right? For the... But it was vain, vain, repetitious. You go in the game, and then after the game, what do we do? We go out and party. You know what I mean? Nobody said in our father before we started slamming old English. You know what I mean? No, nobody said the our father then. It became, we took this prayer that God, that Jesus Christ gave us a simple, beautiful model for what prayer should look like, and we turned it into a vain, repetitious thing. The very thing he was telling his disciples, don't be like the religious hypocrites who do this. Unbelievable. That's how people are. That's how we are. That's what we do. But remember what he says. Your will be done, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Easy to say. Easy to say. Harder to live. When the chips are down, when hardship is, is in the center of your life, or pain, or suffering, to stop then and say, thy kingdom come. I, like, I see that as get me out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Please, come back soon, Lord. I've been praying that lately. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. What does he mean by that when he says that prayer? Through me, as much as I have anything to do with it, may your will be being accomplished on planet earth. That's a person who's given to God. Balaam was no such person. Moses was such a person. Joshua and Caleb were such people. But Balaam was no such person. Balaam was about his will being done on earth. So, and it just, it does, it just blows my mind that God still talks to him, right? It's like God still uses this man, you know, and I always talk, use a, a, an example, and I'm going to generify it as much as I possibly can. But there was a, 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 a pastor, and, and he was an evangelist as well, and he, the guy was unbelievable, unbelievable. He would preach, and it was like amazing, and people's hearts would be touched, and people would be weeping and crying, and lives would be being changed. Meanwhile, this guy was out just fooling around with chicks all the time. This guy was a wolf, 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 and yet... And I remember years, years later when he was exposed and lost his ministry and all these things, and I remember 
thinking to myself, why, God, why would, you, why would you speak through him? Because he did. There's no doubt about it. And it was like that when I started to really understand and, 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 and know for the first time in my life, it ain't about me. It's about him. It's about his word and it's about his will. And God will accomplish his will. And God will have his word spread, whether the servant's heart is pure or not. But there is an accounting. There is an accounting. Uh, and the scripture is clear about that. So, God meets with Balaam in verse 4, and he said to him, I've prepared the seven altars. I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. God had already told Balaam he was not supposed to go to Moab, that he was not to curse the people. This is back in that Numbers chapter 22, verse 12, when God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And we went through that whole thing, and he goes back again. And then finally God says, okay, fine, but don't say anything. Then God tries to stop him again, and the donkey talks, right? And all of the stuff we talked about last week. God had already told Balaam he was not to go to Moab, and he was not to curse the people because they're blessed. So regardless here of what sacrifices Balaam offers or how many times God speaks to him or how many blessings he pronounces on Israel in his heart, there was only one goal and one prize, and that is to attempt to curse Israel so that he might be enriched. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of of my Father in heaven. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, and then don't do the things that I say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, this, if this don't scare you, then you ain't paying attention. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? I've never prophesied that I'm aware of, other than, you know, foretelling the word of God, that's a form, but I've never spoken anything that was going to happen and, and known that it was God's word, my mouth, and it had it come to pass. Uh, you know, I've never cast out demons I've thought about it, but I've never cast out demons. I've never done a miracle that I'm aware of. God's never used me to perform some sort of a miracle, but these guys have. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you have people who have performed miracles. You have people who have cast out devils, and you have people who have prophesied. And that means real prophecy. And they're going to come to me on that day, God, Jesus says, and say, Lord, Lord, hey, I'm here, right? I never knew you. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. Now, please don't misunderstand me or mistake what I'm trying to say. There is no way, okay, that you are not out there thinking, I love Jesus with all my heart and I just want to serve him, but really you're not, okay? That's not how it works. That is not how it works. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believes in their heart that God is raising from the dead shall be saved. It's not about your performance. It's not about your works. We are talking about the heart. 
Remember, the Bible always brings us back to this. Jesus, when he taught the people, the Mount of, uh, uh, the, on, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it was all about their whole religious experience was what? The temple, the sacrifices, the traditions of the elders, all of the eating restrictions. That was religion. And Jesus comes up there and he begins to teach them. It's nothing to do with those things. All those things are, are, are shadows and examples of something bigger, of something greater that God wants to do in each person's life. But your heart has to be true before the Lord your God. That's what separates a sheep from a goat. That's what separates someone who he says, well done, good and faithful servant, to someone he says, I never knew you. I don't know about you, I'm a jerk, right? And I screw up and do stupid things all the time, but I know Jesus, and I know that he knows me because he talks to me when I'm driving. <laughs> he talks to me all the time. I know who Jesus is, and I know that he knows. And if you are a child of God and you love Jesus, you know him, and you know that he knows you. We're talking again about people who have a divided heart. This is a person who is there because they believe in maybe the goodness of Christianity. Maybe they like the idea of it. Maybe it is purely 100% just out of greed. I don't know. But in their heart of hearts, they don't know Jesus. They don't know him. That's, that's, that's it's heavy duty. Balaam, when he talks to God, is not trying to hear something new from God. That's not his intention. You ever go to God with your, with your, with your bullet points? <laughs> you got your outline? Uh, I'm glad you showed up for this meeting, Lord. Uh, you're probably wondering why I called this meeting. Uh, there's a few things I would like to speak to you about, <laughs> okay, uh, particularly the direction in which my, you know. Here I am. <laughs> Search me and know me and see if there be a wicked way in my heart. God already knows. You don't have to, just don't even write it down. He already knows. He knew what your desire was going to be before he said, let there be light. Okay? That's when we talk about the gift of tongues. That whole idea of the, t of the gift of tongues is, is, is coming before Jesus Christ, coming before the throne of God, and being, being filled with the Holy Spirit in our prayers to him where that English words are, are completely without value. That you don't, there's, you don't have to speak intelligible words to the Lord. It's just you praying to God and you're speaking in a prayer language... And there's just an understanding that's happening between you and God. Why? Because he's reading your heart and he's reading your mind and he's knowing and studying your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And that's the one thing we have to say, search me, know me. Balaam was not trying to hear something new from God. That was not his intention. His intention is to find a way to get paid. And what he is really trying to put on the altar is the nation of Israel. All men worship, and we will sacrifice many things to serve that which we worship. In the pursuit of things, in the pursuit of worldly uh, accomplishments, in the pursuit of so many things, people will lay everything on the altar, sometimes including their faith. 
um, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram. Now we're in verse 7. He took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone. I love this part. Not reckoning itself among the nations. There's the, there's the world, there's the kingdoms of this world, there's the empires that this world has known, and then there's Israel. They stand apart, they stand alone, they stand separate because God called them. Because God took them and he made them his own special people and he put them outside of the things of the world. So no matter how many times Israel has sought in their history to be like the world or to be a part of the world, the world has never reckoned them as being a part of it. That's the story of world history. You ever have a chance, they have a Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. too, that I've heard is very, very, very good. If you ever have a chance to go there, go there. I've not yet been. I've been to the one in Israel, and holy shamoli. <laughs> no serious, heavy-duty stuff. The Holocaust Museum, the history of the Holocaust Museum doesn't start with 1942, 1938. It starts all the way back, all the way back to Israel being scattered. And the anti-Semitism that they've faced ever since, down through the ages, as the prince of the power of the air of this world has sought to destroy them. Why? So that he can make the promises of God null and void. And God has supernaturally protected her. Now, this is one of the great things about being a Christian, because Paul says, look, Israel's like an olive tree, just beautiful olive tree, and then there's you the craggly, scraggly Gentile, right? A wild olive root. That's your, that's your own, right? That's our olive branch. And God took the wild olive branch, that's you and me, and he gently grafted us in to the tree of Israel, into the olive tree, to make us a part of the promises that he gave Jacob. Hello? Whoa! And Paul, when he's saying that, don't you go speaking against Israel is what he's talking about. Don't you go bragging and boasting. Well, they were cast off and so the church could be. If he didn't spare them, is he going to spare you there, wildy? <laughs> wildy coyote, maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. We're grafted into this great privilege. If you have the heart of Jesus Christ, if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, uh, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm no prophet, again, I, I, and I certainly don't know all things. You know what I'm saying? I know a couple things, two, three things. But this is what I believe. This is me personally. I don't know if you can have the Spirit of God inside of you and curse the nation of Israel. Like, I can't even tell you why I love the nation of Israel. You know what I'm saying? Well, I can. It's because of this. I mean, I didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I just love Jews. They're the best. You know what I'm saying? For some reason, I just want to be, I just want to bless the Jews today. No, 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 no. It's because of the blessing of God that surrounds that nation. 
And make no mistake about it, Scripture is very, 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 very clear. There ain't no kind of replacement theology. We haven't replaced the nation of Israel. All the promises that God gave to Jacob are going to be fulfilled. The Bible says, uh, as, as long as the sun rises in the, in the east and sets in the west, his promises to Jacob stand. Did the sun rise in the east this morning? Most likely it's going to set in the west, right? His promise still stands. And what we can take away from that is, then so do his promises to me. Because we're grafted in. A nation, not a, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? This is interesting what Balaam says. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. We're going to talk about that in a minute, that his death was not going to be the death of Jacob and he was not going to die a righteous death. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Now, this is what a, a very interesting point to make here as well. How many times has Balaam already, and how many more times is he going to say to Balak, read my lips, study the words that are coming out of my mouth, I'll say it Again, I can only say the things which God has told me to say. And every single time he pronounces a blessing on Israel, Balak's like, I don't understand where this is coming from. Every time. And what we see here is that the world does not respect the things of God. Only thing Balak was interested in Balaam for was what Balaam could do for him. That he could make Balak feel as though he was approved. Because Balaam was a prophet, and if he would curse the nation of Israel on Balak's behalf, Balak would feel justified in himself. And he demanded that Balaam do it. He demanded that Balaam do it. Stop doing that. Stop blessing. I got to say what God tells me to say. Stop it. Curse them. Curse these people. He has no interest whatsoever in really knowing the mind or heart of God. None whatsoever. This is the thing. Christian, go tell the truth. Tell people the truth in love. In love. Not talking turn or burn stuff. We're talking about you need to know Jesus. You need to be born again. You need to repent. That's a popular word. Repent. People love it, always have. If you're truly a follower of God, if you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, and the day is coming and the time is growing shorter, my friends, and I'm telling you, it's going to come to the point they're going to hate you anyway. Short of you denying your Lord... They're going to hate you anyway. You might as well tell them the truth. You might as well tell them the truth. Um, <clears throat> know this in the last days. Uh, perilous times will come. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, 
That in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3, 1 Timothy 3, 8, and Titus 1, 7, when Paul is giving uh, Timothy and Titus um, the uh, uh, prerequisites to being a preacher, to being a, a minister, here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3, 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. 1 Timothy 3.8, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Titus 1.7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11, Paul says this to the young Timothy, now godliness with contentment is great gain. I hope you have that today. I hope no matter where you are, no matter who's listening to this message this morning, I hope whatever your financial status is, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I hope you have godliness with contentment. That's true riches. That's true riches. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Notice, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice what it says. You've heard it 100,000 times. Uh, Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It is not what the Bible says, right? You guys know this already. You're students. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is not evil, okay? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Why? For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. I've heard it said before that money is a fantastic servant and a horrible master. <laughs> it's a fantastic servant, but a horrible master. God blesses people in all sorts of different ways. And if God has blessed somebody with financial uh, freedom, financial uh, success, that's a, praise God. That's a blessing. God called us to be good stewards of that which he blesses us, us with. There's not a person out there who has money that should feel bad about it. Specifically, God, remember, again, always God is talking about the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the heart, a person who loves money. You know, this could be a poor person. Immediately, we, we jump to the conclusion, right? You ever hear that too? I love that one. The most exercise that most Christians get is jumping to conclusions. <laughs> oh, um, it, it, you immediately think, oh, rich people, <laughs> richie. Richie, riches. Not necessarily. You ever go to the gas station to get your coffee or your monster energy drink or whatever other thing? Perhaps three Twinkies and a breakfast pizza? I don't know. <laughs> and you see somebody at the lotto machine and they run, they get their tickets and, oh, 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 oh. <clears throat> and then they run back in or they try a couple, oh, and then they're back out through. 
You ever see them? And, and, and a lot of times they're like, they're broke. You could tell they're broke. They are just as guilty as somebody who is a billionaire who has that heart. Does it make any difference? It's always the heart. Now, um, I want to finish with Numbers chapter 31, verses 8 and 16. We're fast-forwarding here a little bit. I'm jumping ahead. But just some final thoughts here about Balaam. Numbers 31, verses 8 and 16. They killed the kings of Midian, obviously we fast-forwarded, with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Verse 16, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, we're going to get to chapter 24, uh, and that's going to be the final chapter of Balaam and his prophecies, and the same thing continues. Spoiler alert, okay? You can skip the next couple of weeks. No, no, don't do that. The next couple of chapters is Balaam trying to curse Israel, and all he can do is bless them. And that's all I can do. Finally, chapter 24, Balak says, now get your stuff and go. And then the next verse, when you go from the end of 24 to 25, is the daughters of Midian coming into the camp of the Israelites and seducing them and bringing them to the houses of their gods to worship Baal. The next verse, when you go from 20, Balaam leaves, and then that's the next verse in the scripture. So what happened between the end of 24 and the beginning of 25? We don't know for certain, nor do we know how Moses has all this information about Balaam. Maybe a donkey wandered into the camp and said, Have I got a toy for you? You know, I don't know. But somehow, somebody <laughs> told Moses this whole story, all of this stuff. And Moses was made aware that at some point in time between Balak saying, okay, fine, all you're going to do is curse Israel, get your stuff and leave. And the next chapter, whatever period of time that was, Balaam came back and he told them, I can't pronounce a curse on the children of Israel, but here's what I can tell you about them. Here's what I can tell you about them, how they may be subdued how they may be brought to heal. Now, Numbers 24, 25, Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. It says that he was from Peor. Uh, and I, I did some Bible map checking. It's in Mesopotamia. And it's near the river, it says, in, in Deuteronomy, um, I wrote it down, Deuteronomy 23, 4. Uh, Numbers 22, 5 says Balaam was, is from Pethor, excuse me. And Deuteronomy 23, 4 tells us that this is the Pethor in Mesopotamia. I did the Bible map thing. It's like 400 miles. It's like 400 miles. We think like Balaam was like next door neighbors to these guys. Now, again, I don't know, we don't know 100% where Balaam was actually staying when Balak sent the emissaries to, to go. Maybe he had traveled halfway or almost all the way and was staying locally, you know, for a few weeks. Who knows? We don't know. But where he's from, his home is like 400 miles plus miles away. So from the time Balak sends him away, he probably didn't get very far before he, aha, I know what I can do. And isn't it interesting that Balaam understood, he knew that if the children of Israel 
turn their back on God and turn their heart after the things of this world, that God would reject them. How do you suppose Balaam knew that? Wow. It's as though Balaam already knew that about himself and was okay with that. And he was willing to go all the way. All the way. I mean, was the Lord screaming in his ear as he was approaching Balak, don't do it, don't you do it, don't you do it. But he worshiped at the altar of money and he laid his own soul on the altar that day. That's incredible to me. Because Balaam's with the Midianites when they're destroyed. And so that means he came back. And he did not die. And remember what he said in chapter 23 at the end of his blessing. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Let me die with the children of Israel. Let me have the blessings of Jacob. But because his heart was divided, he died the death of a Midianite king. Yikes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we pray that we would learn our lesson, Lord, from this uh, in, very interesting but kind of heavy portion, Father, studying the heart uh, and the life of Balaam, Father. Help us to, <laughs> to just flee uh, from the lust of this world and, and the love of the things of this world, Father, that entangled him and brought him down to the pit, Lord. Help us to flee from those things in our own lives, to run away from those things and to seek to be uh, simply yours, Lord, and to allow our lives to be just whatever it is that you ordain them to be, Father, as we walk before you, Father, but to hold nothing back and to allow there to be nothing in our lives, Father, that supersedes our love of you uh, and the calling in our lives, Father, to follow you no matter what the cost, Lord. We pray that you would put in us the true gospel, Lord, that when we stand before our Baliks, uh, whoever that may be, Father, whether it's a person great or small, when we stand before the ungodly, Lord, and they seek from us some sort of spiritual blessing or uh, to, to, to go along with their idea of how the world works or how God's mind works, Father, that we would have the courage to say, this is what the Bible says, and God will not relent. God will never turn back from what his word has stated. Help us to be uh, people of resolve, Lord, and of courage to always speak the truth and never allow our own... Um, interests, Father, ever to get in the way of telling people what they need to be told in love. Uh, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. Have your way in us and through us today. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, everybody. Amen.